Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a weekly series about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're talking about a topic near and dear to me, Hashima Island. I actually made a video about this island a while back, and it was one of my very first long form type content things when I moved away from Reddit content. After seeing this place in the movie Skyfall, I became so fascinated to probably an unhealthy degree with Hashima Island, as well as the story and history behind it. However, the video that I made about it came out ages ago, and I'm talking, we're gonna be going on like a year and a half, almost two years at that point. And it didn't really get the attention it deserved, and I didn't really do it the justice that it deserved either. So here I am again, doing a deeper dive on the topic and sharing my love for Hashima Island once again with all of you. So let's just jump into it. Hashima Island, better known as Battleship Island, lies about nine miles off the coast of Nagasaki, Japan. It's one of the many islands in the Nagasaki prefecture, over 500 of which are uninhabited. However, as the buildings on the island suggest, this place wasn't always abandoned. Modern Japanese history can be divided into four periods. 1600 to 1868 is the period of the Tokugawa shoguns, the feudal political order with economic and social change occurring in a gradual manner. This period saw growing urbanization, the spread of popular education and the rise of the merchant class. Between 1868 to 1890 is the early Meiji period, rapid modernization and dramatic change of political, social, and economic institutions, meeting the challenge of the West by following its model. 1890 to 1945, Imperial Japan, constitutional policy with the emperor as reigning monarch, industrialization, urbanization, and an increasingly mobile society drive for international status and world power, including imperialism in Asia and finally war with the United States. 1945 to present is contemporary Japan, democratic reform under allied occupation, stable political democracy, high economic growth in the 60s and 70s, followed by political instability and recession in the early 90s. When coal was first found on Hashima Island in 1810, it wasn't seen as an incredibly valuable resource. However, a few decades later in 1868, Japan entered the Meiji period as we mentioned. One source explains, in the middle of the 19th century, Japan's ruling shogunate was a weak feudal order unable to control all of its own domains, much less defend the nation against a threat from the Western powers. This threat materialized in 1853 with the arrival of Commodore Matthew Perry and a squadron of the US Navy demanding that Japan open commerce with the West. The result was a series of unequal treaties in which Japan was forced to concede special economic and legal privileges to the Western powers. Beside Japan lay China, weak and humiliated, an example of what could befall a great Asian nation unable to defend itself against Western imperialism. Determined that Japan should not share fate with China and convinced that modernization depended on abolishing the feudal order, a group of middle ranking samurai overthrew the military government of the Shogun in 1868 and set Japan peaceably on a course of radical modernization, perhaps unparalleled in history carried out in the name of restoring rule to the emperor, who then took the reign name Meiji, meaning enlightened rule, the Meiji restoration was in many ways a profound revolution. 
The new leaders studied the political, economic, and social institutions of the Western powers and selectively adopted those suited to their purpose. In 1889, a constitution was promulgated which established a parliamentary government, but it left it accountable to the emperor rather than to the people. Administrative power was centralized in a national bureaucracy, which also ruled in the name of the emperor. The classes were declared equal so that samurai and their lords lost their feudal privileges while the role of merchants formerly despised as profit hungry began to be respected. The enthusiastic adoption of the new Western technologies caused an explosion of industrial productivity and diversification. A national military and universal conscription were established. Compulsory education was introduced to both to teach the skills needed for the new nation and to inculcate values of citizenship in all Japanese. The emperor had typically been a religious and spiritual leader as opposed to a political one that time, but Japan changed that. Japan also drafted its first constitution in 1889, establishing the emperor's powers checked by a parliament called the Diet. The point is things were rapidly changing at this time and coal had now become extremely valuable for Japan's industrialization and expansion. Mining began in 1870 on Hashima Island. In 1883, it was owned by son Rokuro Nabishima, the feudal lord of the Nabishima domain who had worked to modernize the operations. In 1890, it was purchased by Mitsubishi Mining, which had operations at the Takashima coal mine near Hashima Island. The purchase price was 100,000 yen, equivalent to 2 billion yen in today's economy. At the time, Mitsubishi itself was a young shipping company. Yataro Awasaki founded the company in 1870, and he played a major part in expanding the company when he purchased the Takashima coal mine in 1881. Mitsubishi's website states, the previous owner Shojiro Goto had acquired the mine from the Japanese government and owning to poor management and the lack of expertise in the mining business ran the company into disarray. Yanosuke Awasaki persuaded Yataro to purchase the mine through his comprehensive assessment of its estimated reserves and business potential. Under new management, the mine later emerged as a profitable enterprise as new mining technology was introduced. With their history, it's not hard to see why Mitsubishi bought Hashima Island. I know many of you probably know them as the car company, considering that, you know, that's kind of one of the things they're known for today, but they started with shipping and Hashima was a massive project that they actually undertook. One of my sources states, at Hashima, Mitsubishi launched a project to tap the coal resources under the sea bottom, successfully sinking a 199 meter long vertical shaft in 1895 and still another shaft in 1898. The company also utilized the slag from the mine to carry out a series of land reclamations, thereby creating flat space for industrial facilities and dormitories. Completed around 1907, the high seawalls gave the island the appearance of a battleship riding the waves. The resemblance was so uncanny that a local reporter dubbed it Gunkanjima Battleship Island, a nickname that soon replaced the official name in common parlance. Hashima was producing about 150,000 tons of coal annually, and its population had soared to over 3,000 when in 1916, Mitsubishi built a reinforced concrete apartment block on the island to alleviate the lack of housing space and to prevent typhoon damage. 
This was Japan's first concrete building of any significant size. The fact that America's first large-scale concrete structure, the Ingalls office building in Cincinnati, was built only 14 years earlier shows that the building on Hashima was a front runner in a new era of Japanese architecture. A square six-story structure built around a dinghy inner courtyard at the southern edge of the island, the building provided cramped but private lodgings for the miners and their families. Each apartment consisted simply of a single six tatami mat, 9.9 square meter room with a window, door, and small vestibule. More like a monk's cell than an apartment, but still a major improvement over previous living quarters. Bathing, cooking, and toilet facilities were communal. For a while, life on Hashima Island seemed great. Residents had housing, elementary and junior high schools, hospitals, temples, a movie theater, hair salons, pachinko halls, mahjong parlors, and bars. Just about everything the mainland did. Hashima coal mine was its own little city with events like May Day festivals and the Yamagami festival on April 3rd of each year. However, things didn't stay this way. Although Tokyo may see Hashima Island as a symbol of industrialization, we cannot ignore the dark truth behind this island, which began in the early 1900s. In 1916, more concrete buildings were constructed on the island and soon conscripted Korean civilians and Chinese prisoners of war were forced to work at the island under extremely dangerous conditions. CNN reports, there were no bushes, no flowers. We didn't even know what a cherry blossom was, recalled Hideo Kaiji, who was born on Hashima in 1932. We told the seasons from one another by listening to the wind or looking at the color of the ocean and the sky. The period of Kaiji's childhood was also the darkest in Hashima's history. Like many of Imperial Japan's industrial facilities, Hashima was a destination for hundreds of Korean forced laborers. During World War II, Chinese prisoners of war joined their ranks. For them, Hashima was a desperate place. In the Peace Museum at Nagasaki, testimonies from Korean forced laborers line the walls, collated by museum director Yasunori Takazani. The common stories I heard from Korean and Chinese laborers was that they were enormously hungry. The meals were miserable and they could not go to work. They were tortured, punched, or kicked. Kaiji's best friend at school was Korean. He says he didn't see much discrimination against Koreans, but he remembers his parents talking about one episode when a Korean worker was beaten. My father and mother were saying how sorry they were, but my dad said it was inevitable because it was wartime. He remembers resenting the Chinese as a child because they were locked up in the Southern part of the island, right where we used to play baseball. We were so upset they took our place to play, but after the war ended, I learned they were forced to work there. There's been far more stories from this time period as well. Following World War II, it's estimated that a total of 41,000 Chinese laborers were forcefully shipped to Japan, almost 4,000 of them sent to Hashima Island. Another source states, they were forced to dig the coal on the island, undergoing humiliation and cruelty. Fed with residues, the skinny Chinese laborers looked like living skeletons. However, they still had to work in the dark and hot undersea coal mine. If we failed to finish our daily tasks, we would be treated as slaves, said Sun Shangwu, one of the Chinese laborers who survived the ordeal. He was only 14 when he was sent to the island. According to him, the island was fenced with high concrete walls like a giant prison. And indeed, it was a giant prison. Many of the laborers tried to escape, but only fell into the sea and drowned. Some of them even committed suicide because they could not stand the humiliation. 
By the end of World War II, one source estimated that a total of 722 Chinese and 1,442 Korean laborers had been tortured to death on the island. Some of the survivors have spoken out and told their stories as well. One man, Kim Hyung Seob, spoke to the Arang News about his experience. He's Korean and was taken to Japan November 17, 1943. He tells the reporter, I don't even want to talk about it. I can't explain how much we suffered. They gave us dried sweet potato, beans, and bean dregs. That's what they called food for us. He, along with other Korean laborers, were neither well-paid nor well-fed and were forced to spend more than 12 hours a day in the coal mine that was a thousand meters under the sea. Another survivor, Lee In-Un, said that some laborers tried to escape from hell, but failed. The land was visible from the island. It was right across the sea. Some tried to escape by swimming and holding onto wooden panels, but they died. The Japanese citizens had modern, newly built apartments while Korean laborers were crammed into older buildings, photos of which can be found online. Mitsubishi's page about Hashima Island itself is strangely, and I mean that, but probably intentionally, lacking any of this information. Another source, this one Korean claims, working conditions in the coal mine were unspeakable. The miners had to labor for long periods of time in narrow mines where they could not stand upright. In a pamphlet handed out to visitors to the island, the average temperature in the coal mine was 30 degrees Celsius and humidity was 95%. It was very harsh to work in the face of dangers such as gas explosions. In the case of Takashima, another coal mining island next to the warship island, it was known as Hell Island, meaning you must die to leave the island. The South Korean government's investigation of forced mobilization damages in the Japanese uprising and the support committee for victims of forced mobilization overseas in a 2012 report estimated that there were about 500 to 800 Korean workers on the warship island in 1944. The number of Koreans who died on that island between 1925 and 1945 is 122 and a clear number is disclosed. A member of the Japanese civic group Nagasaki's meeting to protect the human rights of Koreans in Japan visited the island and died during this period, including 1,162 Japanese, 122 Koreans, and 15 Chinese names, origin, date of death, and cause of death. This is because they found the official document cosmetic license of the government office in Korea. Among them, when looking at the causes of death for Koreans age 17 and older, 30% soldiers, 14% deaths due to trauma, and 26.1 of the deaths were found. The committee expressed an opinion that the death of a coal mine accident seems to be the cause of the disaster, but there is a possibility that it may have been death due to harsh behavior. And I apologize that there's any odd wording. I'm not sure how well of a job Google Translate did on that page, but regardless, until the war ended, it's pretty apparent that there was some horrific treatment of forced laborers happening on Battleship Island. Mining in of itself is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world, even in modern day. So I can't imagine how dangerous it must've been nearly a hundred years ago. After the war, one of the most important tasks the mining industry had to face was rebuilding their workforce. One force explains that to restore production, the government launched an emergency plan to hire 133,730 miners in 1945 and 105,700 through the end of 1946. In fact, the priority plan for coal meant that the numbers of miners rose much faster than expected and reached a high of 469,000 workers in January, 1948, surpassing the war period peak. 
Given the high mobility rate of these new miners, the main concern became to stabilize them. For this purpose, mining companies tried to develop their knowledge of miners' everyday life and started conducting regular social surveys. Starting in July, 1947, the Coal Industry Confederation took regular surveys of mining households budgets in 50 mines across the country. Their budgets displayed certain characteristics. A huge share of household income was directly earned from work for the mining company. The share spent on housing, including water and electricity was very low and their nutrition became stable as of the end of the war. Apparently by 1959, Hashima was one of the most densely populated areas on earth with 5,259 people living on just 16 acres. Yet it wasn't much longer before operations on the island ceased altogether. Despite this boom in 1974, the coal ran out. As petroleum replaced coal in the 60s, many coal mines were shutting down too. Hashima Island was closed in January, 1974. And by April 20th of that year, the final inhabitants left. No one's lived there since. Mitsubishi owned the island until the early 2000s. On their site, they explain, in 2001, Mitsubishi Materials Corporation donated Hashima Island to Takashima Town. In 2005, a merger between Nagasaki City and Takashima Town placed Hashima Island under the administrative control of Nagasaki City. And in 2008, Gunkanjima was open to the general public. In the following year, they proposed that Hashima Island be recognized as a site of Japan's Meiji Industrial Revolution. In 2015, it was listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site as part of the sites of Japan's Meiji Industrial Revolution. This has increased its popularity as a travel destination for visitors. So even after closing, Gonkanjima Island has remained an important part of Japan's industrial history. The island now serves as a reminder of the hardworking people who supported the growth of Mitsubishi and the modernization of Japan. And this is where the massive controversy around this island comes in. UNESCO or the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization listed this as a World Heritage Site. I'm not saying they were completely wrong to do so, but many have argued that UNESCO, as well as Japan, have ignored or minimized the fact that forced laborers were tortured there. Back in 2015, even Mitsubishi addressed the topic. The Guardian wrote, Mitsubishi, which developed Gunkanjima and other wartime employers of forced laborers, insists that all compensation and reparation demands were settled by post-war treaties. Officials from both countries have been locked in negotiations in an attempt to bridge the gap. Reports suggest that they could strike a deal in which the South Korean government would drop its opposition in return for Japanese backing its own heritage applications. They haven't been able to fully agree yet, an unnamed government official told South Korea's Yonhap news agency on Friday. The Japanese have agreed with us in principle, but the devil is in the detail. Reports this week said that Seoul would not block the bid, but would stress that the site's darkest secrets be clearly stated in UNESCO documents. Rampant racism and discrimination meant Koreans were treated as second-class subjects and would have been assigned some of the hardest and most dangerous jobs, said William Underwood, a US-based expert on forced labor in wartime Japan. Underwood said Japan's bid has been soured by recent moves by conservative politicians to rewrite the country's wartime narrative by insisting, for example, that tens of thousands of mainly Korean women who worked in wartime brothels were not coerced. I obviously cannot speak for Koreans, but I'll mention a few more perspectives in just a moment. But I think it's telling that Mitsubishi would not only omit this information from their website, but state, oh, reparations have already been made. 
this isn't an issue of money necessarily, not where I see South Korea demanding that Japan pay them for what happened, but the only thing the Koreans have demanded is that the full truth be told if Hashima has UNESCO recognition. I don't think that's too much to ask by any stretch of the imagination. I know that Mitsubishi is a well-known car company and electronics and all of that as well, and they probably don't want to have the public hearing about what happened on Hashima Island when they owned it. However, I'd respect a company more if they recognize and apologize for that dark past and agree that the truth be told, as opposed to one that's just saying, oh, reparations have been made, so we don't have to acknowledge it's happened anymore. As one Korean news source states, for Koreans, Hashima, a former coal mining facility touted by Tokyo as having contributed to the modernization of the country is a haunting reminder of tens of thousands of laborers forcibly conscripted to work for Japan during its brutal colonial rule from 1910 to 45. In July, 2015, 23 Japanese industrial facilities from the Meiji era were designated as UNESCO World Heritage Sites during a meeting of the World Heritage Committee in Bonn, Germany. Seoul at the time strongly opposed the UNESCO designation because forced labor had been employed at seven of those facilities, including Hashima Island. In turn, Japan pledged under a World Heritage Committee recognition to make sure to convey the full history of each site. Last week, a new information center on the 23 facilities from the Meiji Industrial Revolution in Tokyo opened to the public, but the information presented at the center fell short of the promise made by Japan five years ago to UNESCO to properly commemorate wartime forced labor victims. Instead, the center appears to try to ignore or gloss over the brutalities faced by forced laborers by introducing testimonies by survivors saying otherwise. Five years have already passed since UNESCO World Heritage Site designation, and we can't help but conclude after seeing the information center that Japan didn't have the intention from the very beginning to tell accurate history and what the pledge was only to appease the World Heritage Committee to get the designation. This article was released in mid 2020, so it must be truly frustrating and frankly insulting to see the true history of Hashima be erased. Japan has officially admitted that the island had forced labor, yes, but they still seem to avoid this when it comes to the actual site itself. Back in June, 2018, one source stated that a message at the Industrial Heritage Information Center mentioned that Japan imposed a citizen mobilization order during the Pacific War, but it included no clear mention of the forced labor of Koreans. Japan has had years to rectify this. And in 2018, they were supposed to make changes that told the full truth of Hashima Island. Even if the truth is painful and the history of the place most certainly is, I completely sympathize with the South Koreans that feel this only does a disservice to those that died there. One source states, Takazane, the museum director, says Japan needs to address the issue more honestly. Auschwitz is registered as World Heritage Site so people can remember the historical crime. As for Hashima, some do not want to remember that dark side and focus instead on its contribution as a locomotive of Japan's industrialization. That's a betrayal of history. And I think a lot of you know the deal that I'm absolutely about getting to the bottom of a matter. I absolutely admit I've got my biases here and there, but I do wanna find out what's happened and what the facts of a situation are, regardless of my feelings around them. And Hashima is an island that I do want to eventually visit. And I believe they're going to, or they have continued to allow visitors to visit the island. And I would love to visit one day and see what it looks like. 
But to me, it has such a a sad, but an interesting history. And to just completely gloss over that is incredibly disappointing. It's a viable part of its history. And I think the good and the bad need to be recognized as to what happened on that island. So then if tourists are traveling to Hashima, they deserve to know the full truth and families of the Koreans that did suffer and die there deserve to have it told. In my first video on this from a year and a half ago, two years ago, I said that we would have to wait in the following years to see if Japan would keep its promise and include the full history of Hashima. And I am disappointed to see that this does not appear to be the case at all. There is still more information about Hashima out there and more that's happened on the island in recent years. For example, some scientists are trying to save it and preserve the past. Noguchi, one of the men that's been studying Hashima Island along with a team of researchers states that with proper care, these buildings may survive. Right now, the buildings are close to collapsing and in part because of those dangers, most of the island is blocked off. Harsh weather also plays a role in visiting for safety's sake. The island's been featured in tons of films and even video games like Skyfall, as we mentioned earlier. In 2013, one article states, Google actually sent an employee to the island with a street view backpack in order to capture its condition and a panoramic view to see it in all 360 degree angles. You can take a virtual walk across the island now and Google also used its business photos technology to let you peek into the abandoned buildings, complete with ancient black and white TVs and discarded soda bottles. Welcome to one of the most creepy places technology has ever brought to your computer screen. And I highly, highly recommend checking this place out online. It's beautiful in in an eerie, frozen sort of way, but just don't forget the tragic dark history behind the island if you do. I truly hope that the lives lost there aren't forgotten and that Hashima Island can be preserved, not just as a symbol of industrialization that Japan wants, but as a reminder of what truly happened there too and those that suffered silently. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you want to hear more from me, including connecting with me outside of these episodes, make sure to go to my description box and click on my Linktree link. It's gonna pop up a whole little page that has all of my social media and various projects that I'm involved in. So again, thank you so much for making it to another episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.